50, it's already happening. I turned 50 and my memory's already fading. I already remember another announcement I was forgot to tell you. Uh, and it's a very important announcement because uh, our beloved Pastor Paul is currently in the hospital and we certainly uh, want to remember him. And so in ministry room two, if you just go out that door and straight down the hallway till it ends there, ministry room two, we're just going to do a card shower for him and hoping to get uh, hundreds of cards for him. I know in Sunday school, uh, the, the preschoolers and so forth are painting pictures for him and the other classes are also drawing cards and pictures for him. Uh, and so just would love to be able to this week uh, drop off uh, some love from Emmanuel. So uh, please keep that in your memory uh, as you exit today and just again straight down there. Uh, Hopefully there's plenty of cards, but if we run out, you can always just go to the store, buy one, and and get it to us, and we can include it. Um, We'll probably take it to uh, Pastor Paul hopefully sometime in the middle of the week. So I just want to make sure we're aware of that. All right, let's uh, bow our heads for prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, and grant that we would so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, so that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we would embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Mosaic, we love our Bibles, value our Bibles, always encourage you to bring your Bible to Mosaic, but if you need a Bible, not a problem at all. Grab one in the pew or chair around you, uh, but, uh, and if you need to make that your own Bible for good, accept that as a gift from us to you, or if you know someone that needs a Bible, don't hesitate to take one of our Bibles and give it away. We want the Word of God in the hands and in the lives of people. But if you will, take your Bible and hold it up and repeat after me. This is my Bible. Jesus is who it says he is. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. My mind is alert. By God's grace, my heart is receptive. The Bible is the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living Word of God. My encounter with the Bible today will transform and grow my faith. We say together, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to first open up in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, I mean, Matthew chapter 13, I apologize, Matthew chapter 13. And as we do in Mosaic, part of how we are able to cover every verse of the four Gospels is when there are parallel accounts, we'll often kind of flip over and read from that or see what additional information that particular uh, harmonizing text may offer us. So we'll be flipping over in Luke 8 and and Mark 4 a little bit as well. But where we are uh, contextually here in teaching number 74 of uh, Mosaic is we've kind of come to that 
area of Jesus' ministry that's really focusing on a particular method of teaching that he used, and that is the use of parables. And Matthew's gospel is interesting in how it's organized. It has five main divisions in the gospel of Matthew. One of them uh, we're very familiar with, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But that third division of Matthew's division is kind of uh, very heavy on the parables of Jesus. And Matthew, more than any of the other four gospels, contains the most parables. They They do appear in the other three, but not nearly with the frequency that they do in Matthew. And so we've kind of gotten into that a little bit and uh, heard a parable and have explored a little bit of why Jesus taught in parables. Um, And then uh, as we concluded teaching 73... His disciples uh, asked him, after they wanted some clarification uh, on a parable, again asked him the question, why do you teach in parables? In fact, the Gospels make that very strong statement that he never taught without using a parable. And so they were kind of curious about that. That was something that while all rabbis of the period taught in parables, Jesus apparently was teaching at a different frequency, and and so they wanted to know what was that about. And Jesus, as we're going to see, at first gives a relatively cryptic answer, or even an answer that that may sound confusing, uh, but then we'll need to track it back. He's actually quoting Scripture. He's quoting the Old Testament. And when we go back to where he's pulling that from, hopefully the context of that will help us better understand his answer that he gave to his disciples. So let's look at Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 13, and let's read these words of Jesus together. For in their seeing, they will not see, and in their hearing, they will not hear, nor do they even understand. And again, that's some hard words, especially this is Jesus' answer to, why do you teach in parables? And that's his answer. And it almost sounds like, are you saying you're, you're teaching in parables so that they won't understand you? so that they won't see your point, so that they won't hear what you're trying to convey, so that they won't understand what you're all about. It almost seems that way. Um, But again, we're going to try to dive into the context uh, of this, especially from the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus' Bible, and then from there draw out what he was really saying and, and what he was really comparing not only himself to, but also his generation. So Jesus here in Matthew 13, verse 13, is actually quoting the Bible. So his answer is a Bible verse. So he's grounding his reasoning in the Scriptures. It's a quote from the book of Isaiah that he was using to explain his reason that he used parables when he taught to the masses. Now, the context of this is, it's going to be in Isaiah chapter 6, and when the Lord commissioned Isaiah to be a prophet to his people, one of the things that God told Isaiah was this, and this is where Jesus is pulling it from. 
God tells Isaiah, hey, I need you to go be a prophet. I need you to go tell this people uh, my message, my word. And essentially, it was a very similar message to Jesus. It was a message of you need to repent, you need to turn, you need to change, you need to be transformed, you need to be renewed, you need to re-engage God on God's terms, because Isaiah was prophesying that if not, then the inevitable kind of uh, misconnection that they were making would result in the destruction of Jerusalem. And so God tells Isaiah, hey, go and tell this people Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Again, at first, that sounds like, wow. It's like you don't want them to get the message, and you don't want them to return, and you don't want them to repent. You want them stuck where they're at. Isaiah's errand that he is sent on by the Lord at first seems very paradoxical. The Lord instructed Isaiah to tell the people of Israel to listen to the message of repentance, but at the same time it says, and not comprehend it. Make their hearts insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they hear the prophetic rebuke with their eyes. Again, it sounds as if God wanted Isaiah to bamboozle Israel into continuing on a path of sin and stubbornness and destruction. But why would God send a prophet to keep Israel from repenting? Or why would Jesus come onto the scene only to try to prevent people from repenting? So we know from the rest of the story that doesn't fit the context. That doesn't fit the context of Isaiah's mission and ministry. It certainly doesn't fit the rest of the context of Jesus' mission and ministry. So we know there has to be more to the story. And this becomes a very fundamental Bible interpretation tool for you anytime you're reading the Bible and you come across a passage that sounds really challenging, really difficult, or even like, no, nah, that, can't, that can't be right. Uh, the method is you let Scripture interpret Scripture. And as a sub-point of letting Scripture interpret Scripture— is the idea that you interpret difficult passages in light of less difficult or less challenging or more clear passages. So you don't just get to go, well, that doesn't sound right, therefore it's not right. You can go, that doesn't sound right, or that doesn't make sense, or that's really difficult. And so you then know, well, Scripture has to be consistent with itself. So I'm going to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and I'm going to try to find some easier passages, if you will, that kind of deal with the same thing, or broaden the context in Scripture to help me make better sense of the challenging portion. And so that's what we want to do today with this passage. Uh, the New American Standard Version uh, translates the Hebrew conjunction. It's a letter vav, but it's a coordinating conjunction in Hebrew, and it can mean the coordinating conjunction and, or it can mean the coordinating conjunction but. Context dictates which one that is, but I think already you can tell the difference 
right? A big difference that would be made between a sentence that is connected with and and a sentence that is connected with but, right? And so that can help us also as we look at the original wording in its original language of Isaiah, and we can better translate it with uh, not a conjunction of but, but with a conjunction and. And so we can better understand Isaiah's message as an expression of God's frustration that the prophetic message will ultimately, at a critical mass level, be ignored. Not that everybody that hears it will ignore it, but that on a critical mass, that the, the vast majority of that generation that hears Isaiah, God is letting Isaiah know at the beginning of his ministry, hey, Isaiah, this is going to be a really tough task because I'm going to give you a really challenging message to give to the people, and it's going to be one that they don't want to hear in the first place. And then even upon hearing it, I need to go ahead and prepare you. You are not going to see a lot of success. But God is letting Isaiah know that doesn't mean you're failing. That doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean you've messed up my message. I'm just letting you know you are going to proclaim and they as a critical mass aren't going to hear. And you're going to show them and as a critical mass, most of them aren't going to see And this is the thing about the Word of God, and this gives us something to think about today for sure. And even our attitude we have when we're in a worship service or in a Bible study or encountering anything of the things of God. The Word of God is a double-edged sword. And so while it is loaded with life-changing, life-transformation words, and and it is the vehicle, uh, one of the means of God's grace to us, When it is ignored, when it is belittled, when it is put on the back burner, when it is discredited, it has another edge to the sword that brings judgment. The very thing that gives you life can be the very thing that takes that life from you. And that is what the context of the original message to Isaiah that Jesus is quoting, that Isaiah is going to bring this message and that While some are going to hear and some individuals are going to repent and change and be transformed and readjust their ways and return to God, Isaiah was told, unfortunately, this isn't really going to end that successfully. And so Jesus is kind of making that same statement. He's saying, look, I speak in parables because as we've talked about, it's the one-room schoolhouse. It reaches a variety of audiences at a variety of levels, at a variety of experiences. However, if we let it go in one ear and out the other, it will dull our eyes and it will dull our hearing uh, it reminds me of a quote from Dr. Martin Luther um, when he was talking about baptizing infants. And he actually was sometimes uh, reticent to do that, believe it or not, because he said, when I baptize that child, I'm committing that child for the rest of its life, whether it knows it or not at this point. It's going to be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be enlightened. It's going to be marked, right? And 
that means something. And it can mean something amazing and positive and, and again, this transformational and life-altering. But if we dull ourselves to it, it glazes over our heart. And so Jesus is also here. We're going to start seeing this shift in the Mosaic teaching. As Jesus progresses in his teaching and as he begins to see more and more of the response to him that is oppositional, he begins to prepare his closest disciples for his inevitable rejection, which then brings with it his inevitable cross and death and burial. And so already in here, in this quote Jesus is giving, he is letting his disciples know one of the reasons why it's much like the mission of Isaiah. And as we'll go and continue to unpack this, we'll see that this is also the case with other prophets as well. And so Jesus is very much falling in line in the tradition of Israel's prophets. So Isaiah was to come to preach repentance to the people of God. But in the end, again, as a critical mass, not every single individual, but as a critical mass, they resisted his message. But also when the Lord commissioned the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he warned them with a similar kind of word that the people in the end, again, the critical mass, not specific people, would resist the prophetic message that the kingdom of God was at hand and that God was in their midst and that God was wanting to do a great thing among them. In fact, the Lord warned Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 19. He says, they will fight against you. Or Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 7. The house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you since they aren't willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. And so, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, Jesus came preaching this amazing message that God has drawn near to that generation, and specifically in Jesus' generation, he's drawn near in the incarnation, in the very flesh and blood of the Son of God. And Jesus knew that destruction and exile was looming on the horizon. And he knew people would not receive his message. Nevertheless, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, he presses forward with an urgent message. And so when his disciples asked him why he spoke to the people in parables, he quotes from Isaiah to bring in the whole context of it because, again, he is helping to prepare them because at this point, they might still be thinking, how can anyone resist this message? I mean, look how it's transformed them. They've left their boats, they've left their nets, and for extended periods of time, they have left their families, all because they are transfixed by Jesus. He's changed their life. They are different people. And for them, they may be thinking, this is going to catch fire, and this is going to take over the world. And soon they began to have visions of grandeur that Jesus is going to be reigning on a throne in Jerusalem. The Davidic kingdom is going to be restored and all nations are going to be streaming to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is kind of bringing them back down to earth and saying, yeah, my message is all of that and even more. It's even more than you understand now. But... It is going to be met with opposition, and it's going to be severe 
opposition. And it's going to result in the hardening of a lot of hearts. And inevitably, as he is preparing them, he will eventually begin to make that even more clear, that it's going to result in his death and his burial. And so he is kind of bringing all of that into view when in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 13, he quotes that passage from Isaiah. The people of Jesus' generation, again, as a critical mass, not every single person, because clearly the disciples, the apostles, uh, the crowds of 5,000 and 4,000 that he feeds, the 3,000 at Pentecost, clearly many in that generation individually did repent and did embrace the kingdom of God. But the critical mass of the generation did not see, and therefore they did not understand. And their hearts were dull, and their ears were heavy, and their eyes were closed. And Jesus used parables as an attempt to penetrate the incomprehension of individuals so that they might indeed hear with those ears and understand with those hearts and see with those eyes so that God might heal them. Jesus was trying to bring light to the spiritually blind and the sound of his voice to the spiritually deaf. So let's flip over in the Gospel of Luke and look at kind of the parallel of this. Luke chapter 8, verse 8. Um, let's read these words of the Gospel together. When he finished speaking, he called, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus compared the peril facing his generation, as I said, to that of Israel in Isaiah's day, or in Jeremiah's day, or in Ezekiel's day. And he knew that the Lord had already set the hand of judgment in motion, and that a powerful spiritual blindness was going to soon grip the people. Just as in Isaiah's day, Many saw, but did not perceive. They heard, but they did not understand. And their spiritual um, lethargic nature could only lead to their destruction. And again, that's an important word for us today. If we are spiritually lethargic, if we are spiritually apathetic, if we are spiritually lazy, that has serious, serious consequences. It's a wake-up call. The same wake-up call Jesus was proclaiming then, he is proclaiming now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within your grasp. It is within your midst. And so uh, Ezekiel 12, verse 2, it employs the same kind of imagery that Jesus is using here. Ezekiel 12, verse 2 says, Son of man, by the way, what is Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels? Son of man. Jesus doesn't refer to himself as the Son of God. Other people will refer to Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus does not. Jesus often repeated and most definite by a long shot. His favorite title for himself, if you will, is Son of Man. And here in Ezekiel 12 too, Son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. In Mark 4, verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, take care what you listen to. And so as he taught his parables, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, 
Let him hear. The Hebrew word that Jesus would have been speaking, whether in Hebrew or Aramaic, he would have been saying, Shema, Shema. Which Shema in Hebrew not only means to hear, meaning the, the physical cognitive act of a sound going in and vibrating your eardrum and connecting to, you know, uh, things in your brain and firing off and all of that, but hearing in Aramaic and Hebrew implies a response, a listening, uh, an obedience. And so when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, he's saying, look, if you're hearing what I'm saying, do it, obey it, listen to it, like let it become part of who you are. Um, that's what it is idiomatically. The parable of the sower uh, that we have talked about compared four different types of disciples. That was previous teaching to four different types of soil. And each of those types of disciples heard the message of the kingdom. But if you review teaching 73, you'll see not all of them truly shamad. Not all of them truly heard it where it became part of their being. All right, let's go back to Matthew and keep reading Jesus in that section of Matthew that um, is kind of dedicated to the parables. Matthew chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. Let's read these words of Jesus together. But as for you, oh, the joy of your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For amen, I say to you, Many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear. Spiritual blindness and deafness was hiding the essential message of Jesus and his kingdom from so many people. They did not understand the proclamation that the kingdom of heaven, that God's governance, that God's dispensation of being in their midst was at hand. And for many of the first century, they thought that the coming of the kingdom was only in terms of a future, sometime in the distant future, messianic era. But Jesus wanted to communicate an immediate aspect of the kingdom, that it's here now. Those who accepted it, and those who recognized the presence of King Messiah in their midst, they did not need to wait for that future messianic era to begin. So here is an important shift also in our teachings of Jesus in Mosaic. Jesus is now beginning to teach a relatively deep concept. If you want to know the fancy theological term for it, it's called proleptic eschatology. But what all that really means is now, but not yet. Is the kingdom of God, is the time of Messiah, is the time of miracles, is the time of peace on earth, is it now? For the first century world, is it now that Jesus is here? Or is it in the future? And Jesus' answer to that, that he's going to continue to give as we continue to explore Mosaic, is the answer to is it now or is it in the future? The answer is yes. It's both. It's both. For those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, 
They know the reality of Messiah, and they know the power of Messiah, and it's as if it's in glimpses, uh, flashes of light, but they see the kingdom, and glimpses and flashes and moments, they experience the kingdom now, just like you and I. One of my favorite professors would describe it as like having a stage and having the curtain you know, drawn in front of the stage. But the band and the orchestra and all the actors and actresses, they're all back behind that curtain. And in fact, they're kind of doing a, a quick dry run rehearsal of the event while you are out there. But every once in a while, because it's kind of an old curtain and the air conditioning's blowing, little tears kind of spread and parts of it open up and you get to see in there and you get to hear a little bit of it and you get to see it with your eyes and just experience a tad bit of it. That's the nowness of the kingdom. That is what is accessible to us. That's why we pray to God for healing even now. That's why we expect to see Jesus doing great things in our midst and changing lives and transforming people because the kingdom is here. Well, isn't there a time when he's returning and going to usher? Yes, that's true also. It's not either or, but a both and. And Jesus is beginning to introduce that concept as well in his teachings. And so, unlike many of the multitudes that flocked around this healer from Nazareth, the disciples that were there that day, as Jesus says, they had the eyes that were seeing and the ears that were hearing. The twelve had responded to the teachings of not only John the Baptist, but they had borne out that fruit of repentance in their lives. And believing John's message, they quickly shifted and began to believe and follow Jesus and his message, that Jesus was the one that would come after John, as John had predicted. And they staked their lives upon that faith. And generations of holy prophets and righteous men and women, they longed to see the Messiah, and they longed to see and experience, as Jesus is saying here, what you, you, my twelve, are experiencing. The prophets who had predicted the coming of Messiah, as 1 Peter 1.11 says, sought to know what person or time the Spirit of Messiah would be. They desired to see the day of redemption, and likewise, the righteous men and women of old awaited the coming of Messiah. Luke chapter 10, verse 24. For your salvation, I wait. I hope for your salvation. Uh, Luke's version says, Many prophets and kings wished to see the things that you see, and yet did not see them. The kings of the Davidic dynasty carried with them the covenant promise God gave to David, including the promise of the ultimate son of David, to which every generation looked forward to and wanted to see, but to which these twelve did see. Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these, all these great matriarchs and patriarchs of the faith, they died without receiving the promise, but having seen them and welcomed them at but a distance. And this is an interesting quote from uh, something that's period to the time of Jesus that talks about the day of Messiah. And it, you can hear it in Jesus' words as well. This is from what's called the Peskita Rabati. 
Blessed is the generation whose eyes behold him, meaning the Messiah. Blessed is the eye which has waited for him, whose lips open with blessing and peace, whose speech is pure delight, whose heart meditates in trust and tranquility. Blessed is the eye which has been given the privilege of seeing him. And Jesus is letting that generation know that they have seen him. Let's keep reading in these parables of Jesus. We got time for one parable. I want to save probably the wheat and the tares until I return uh, because that's a fascinating parable when we get into the nitty-gritty of what is a tear. What is a tear? And I think that I want to make sure we have plenty of time to diagnose that. So let's look at this uh, final teaching of Jesus today from Mark chapter 4, verse 21 and 22, the parable of the Lamb. Let's read these words of Jesus together. He said to them, Do people bring out a lamp in order to put it under the bushel measure or under the bed rather than to set it upon the menorah? For nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, and nothing is hidden except in order to be brought out to the light. So again, was Jesus intentionally confusing the crowds with mysterious cryptic parables while secretly giving his real disciples the deeper teachings of the kingdom? Well, the parable of the lamp demonstrates that that is not the case. Jesus used the lamp parable to further explain his reason for teaching to the masses by means of parables. He compared his teaching to the light that shines from a lamp. He said in Luke's version, Luke 8, verse 16, No one, after shining a lamp, covers it with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. His teachings were not like some kind of secret, esoteric lessons of the mystics that were whispered from the mouth of one guru into the ear of one student, lest anyone overhear. Instead, Jesus wanted his teachings disseminated broadly. Luke 8, verse 17, For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, and nothing secret that will not be made known and come to light. And so just as one does not light a lamp, neither does he intend to hide the teachings of who he is and why he came and what is available in him and through him. Just as one sets a lamp on a stand in order to illuminate the whole room, he openly discloses to those who are willing to listen. Who are willing to listen. My teacher would often tell us Over and over and over again, there is no coercion in spirituality. There is no coercion in Messiah. He will not shove himself down your throat. He will not force himself upon you as a dictator. He will not force you to do anything. It's an invitation. It is a gift that God's Spirit uses to enlighten us. But we have to make sure that the other side doesn't reject it, that our ego and our personal desires 
do not reject the gift given to us. There is no coercion, or else it's not a gift. And so Jesus wants his teaching to be disseminated. He wants it to be light in darkness. And so he says, anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. So in this short parable of the lamp, the lamp equals the disciples. The light equals the transmission of Jesus' teachings. The concealed lamp, that would be those who hear the teaching and who hear the message, but do not transmit it. So when we receive the light, we become light and therefore have the responsibility if we hear to give the light. It's being implied in the parable. The overall meaning, a disciple or a follower or one who has encountered Jesus and his teachings and his message and his gospel, but they do not transmit that. They are not fulfilling their purpose as a follower of their teacher, of their rabbi, of Jesus. And it's as if they are as useless as turning on a lamp and then covering it with a dark sheet. So again, these parables of Jesus, many of them, they're, well, they're really all about the kingdom, but many of them are about discipleship. And we're going to be shifting into that in Mosaic as well. Major shift time in Mosaic. Discipleship. Discipleship costs. It has a price. And Jesus, parable after parable, teaching after teaching, is going to lay out the cost of discipleship. And when we continue to look at the cost, it becomes understandable on why there are so few. Remember our axiom. All disciples are believers, but not all believers have paid the cost or are willing to pay the cost to be an actual disciple and light bearer. I think we will close there because I said the wheat and the tares. There's a nice word play going on with the word for tares. And again, perhaps it's just me, but I can remember when I was younger and reading the Bible, I had, I had no clue what a tear was. Like, no clue what a tear was. And it becomes a very important part of this parable. And it'll be another great example of proleptic eschatology. Now, but not yet. All right, let's close with a blessing. Baruch Adonai Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift that is the Holy Scripture. Amen.